Hi everyone, welcome to the Student Psychology Journal with your host JY. Today's topic is going to be about drugs and addiction. I know in our 20s, some people may be experimenting with drugs and falling into unhealthy habits and potentially struggling with addiction. So let's talk about it. We're going to start off by giving a quick rundown of the common psychoactive drugs people use. And then we're going to talk about addiction and why someone might get addicted and how substance use disorder is diagnosed and finally how it's treated. So today we have a special guest. Her name is Ariel and you actually you can introduce yourself. Okay. Um, yeah, my name is Ariel. Um, I am currently a pharmacy student um, completing third year. In terms of uh, drugs and addiction, personally, I'm pretty uh, interested in this um, aspect of uh, medications, so I'm very excited to be here. Sounds good. Whenever you want to add something, any fun facts, feel free to jump in whenever. Okay, so first, what are psychoactive drugs? There are chemicals that influence consciousness or behavior by altering the brain's chemical message system. There's two types. There's the agonist and the antagonist. The agonist is what increases activity of your neurotransmitters, and antagonist is what decreases activity of your neurotransmitters. And if you don't know what neurotransmitters are, they're basically a chemical signaling molecule in your brain. These psychoactive drugs can mimic natural activity of the brain or act differently and activate different regions which are not normally active. And when it activates regions that are not normally active, these are generally hallucinogenic drugs. And animals will work to obtain these drugs, especially dopaminergic drugs, these drugs that increase dopamine in your brain. So these include cocaine, alcohol, amphetamines, barbiturates, Caffeine, opiates such as morphine or heroin, nicotine, PCP, MDMA, uh, which is also known as ecstasy, and THC. And, uh, these dopaminergic drugs are more likely to be addictive. And some psychoactive drugs that animals won't work for are drugs such as mescaline or antipsychotic drugs. So they're le- generally less likely to be addictive. But so our first class of drugs we're going to go through is our depressants. So depressants reduce the activity of our central nervous system by increasing the activity of GABA, which is the primary inhibitory neurotransmitter, and it decreases activity in our neurons. So these include alcohol, which I'm sure we're all aware of. Sometimes we get tired. And um, barbiturates are also depressants, benzodiazepines, which are anxiety drugs, um, toxic inhalants like glue or gasoline, and they have this sedative calming effect. So it can produce both physical or psychological dependence and at high doses, depressants can induce sleep, slower breathing, and it might even actually stop your breathing if at extremely high doses. And I think this is what causes overdoses for Mm -hmm. depressants. Um, It's more so like if you like um, combine like a CNS depressant, so like alcohol, if you drink alcohol and you're taking something else, um, that's when they kind of um, like you'll stop breathing and... Um, you're on other drugs too and so it kind of interacts oh okay so the interaction of drugs is more dangerous yeah Mm -hmm. so we're gonna talk about alcohol because it's the most commonly used drug Um, alcohol is the king of depressants so the initial effects i'm sure we're all aware euphoria reduced anxiety feeling pretty positive and at heavy quantities when we're drunk 
Um, we have slower reactions, slow, slurred speech, poor judgment, and other reductions in the effectiveness of effectiveness of our thought and action. I'm sure we're all probably aware of this. I actually, no, I won't say that because some people are very, uh, maybe they're religious or they have other reasons that they don't drink. So GABA normally inhibits the transmission of the neural impulses, but people react very differently to alcohol. And there's actually an in interesting theory, the expectancy theory, where even in the absence of alcohol, when there's a placebo and people are told it's alcohol, they act drunk. And I think it's people's expectations of how alcohol will influence them in particular situations. Because of this, we're able to snap out of our drunken state. I remember sometimes when I was like drunk with a friend and she starts maybe uh, throwing up and I'm just instantly sober and I need to help her out. Mm -hmm. So the next type is barbiturates. I feel like I'm pronouncing this wrong, but barbiturates. Oh, it is right. Barbiturates. Barbiturates. Yeah. Um, such as saconal or nembutal. They're prescribed as sleep aids and as anesthetics before surgery. These can be addictive, so it shouldn't be the first line of treatment if you have sleeping problems. And generally, I wouldn't recommend people take sleeping pills because yeah. over the long yeah, over the long term, it's only going to cause more problems with your sleep. Yeah, with um, barbiturates, actually, um, they used to be used a lot before like other medications came out. Um, but because um, they come with a lot of like long-term complications when people are taking them regularly, um, these type of drugs are actually not very popular anymore. So if we see them, uh, if we see like a patient taking them, we usually try and switch them to something else that's safer. What would you normally say people would generally take if they had sleeping problems? Mm, for barbiturates, so they were like really commonly used for sleep. Um, right now, there's like drugs called uh, zoplicone or um, so those are like newer sleeping drugs. Um, in terms of like side effects, there's just less drowsiness, less um, CNS depressing, uh, less interaction with other drugs. And since people do realize that if you take sleeping pills too long term, your body depends too much on it. Um, they're prescribed for short-term uses. So I think just also in that case, um, it's technically safer than, say, like barbiturates, which can be addicting and people have a hard time getting off of. Yeah, yeah. So don't, 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 don't take barbiturates for sleeping pills. Don't, don't do, do it. it. <laughs> don't do it. Yeah, don't do it. <laughs> the best line of treatment is to change your sleeping habits, your sleep hygiene. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a, it's a big thing in pharmacy school. Yeah. everyone's always like okay the first thing you want to do um is tell the patient to have good sleep hygiene um rather than kind of going for any medication um just because you know it's like usually if you have like a good habit of like uh closing uh turning off your phone before like you sleep not eating and not doing anything too stimulating usually people can get a pretty good night's rest I think some people have this tendency to search for short-term solutions. So a lot of people turn to medication or drugs and mm -hmm. it's just not a long-term solution. Mm -hmm. So the next drug that we're going to talk about is benzodiazepines. They're also a depressant. Um, commonly used are Valium and Xanax. And they're called minor tranquilizers and they're prescribed as anti-anxiety drugs. 
they're used to treat anxiety or sleep problems but they're dangerous when combined with alcohol because they can have respiratory they can cause respiratory depression slowing breathing and can cause you to stop breathing and long-term use can be produced serious symptoms including convulsions and psychological dependence is very common do you know anything about anti-anxiety drugs yes (laughs) we actually just learned it (laughs) like last semester um so benzodiazepines i would say also um used to be very popular not as popular right now um just because um a lot of people on it right now are elderly people who are prone to falls and fractures and injuries like that so benzodiazepine one of the biggest factor is that it's not only addictive but um it has a lot of again interactions with other drugs and makes people very drowsy um and because of its addictive properties it's actually very very hard to taper people off especially with elderly they're usually they've usually been taking it for like 20 years um so yeah i see this a lot at work and we always try and get the patients off of it but no matter how slow we taper it off they always have withdrawal symptoms which is not very fun um but best case scenario obviously if you cannot take this don't take it and kind of like you said earlier don't combine it with other things that's the golden rule don't take it if you don't need it yeah (laughs) yeah yeah we're gonna go through (laughs) treatment and what the protocols are later which i'm excited to get to but we have to cover all the drugs that are common Mm -hmm. so Next is toxic inhalants. It's a very inexpensive household um, product such as glue, hairsprays, nail polish, remover, or gasoline. And sniffing and puffing these vapors from these products can promote temporary effects that resemble drunkenness. But overdose can be lethal and continued use holds potential for permanent neurological damage. I'm not sure why people do this because I feel like... I know. do Yeah, I do my nails a lot and I smell it. But it doesn't really cause any effect. I'm sure you have to smell a lot of it <laughs> to feel it. But I don't know. For me, I just, I don't see the motivation. I, it doesn't smell good to me. So I don't know why that would be enticing. That's true. But some people at gas stations are like sniffing their gas because it smells good Some to people them. really like the smell. That's the thing. Maybe yeah. that's, yeah, that's when it happened. <laughs> okay, next category are stimulants. So these are a lot of, I would say, party drugs. So stimulants are substances that excite the central nervous system, heightening your arousal and your activity levels. So it increases your dopamine and your norepinephrine in your brain, leading to higher levels of activity in your brain circuits. just gets you alert and pumped. And so dopamine is a neurotransmitter that regulates our motor behavior, motivation, pleasure, and emotional arousal. So a lot of these motivated behaviors include seeking pleasure or associated with actions with rewards dopamine plays a big role in a drug addiction it's usually what um, psychologists associate with addiction because it's so uh, prevalent in addiction and also norepinephrine it influences your mood and arousal and it's involved in a state of vigilance or a heightened awareness of dangers in the environment so increases in alertness, energy, euphoric sense of confidence, and a kind of agitated motivation to get things done. Norepinephrine and dopamine plays a critical role in mood control. It can result in euphoria, wakefulness, bursts of energy. So these drugs include nicotine, amphetamines, ecstasy, MDMA, MDMA whatever you want to call it. I think ecstasy is a type of MDMA. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. ecstasy is more of like the like the street name, basically. Mm-hmm. They have a lot of other names too, 
yeah, all of these drugs have a lot of different street names, but we'll do the more, I guess, academic names of So, interestingly, amphetamines were originally medicinal diet drugs. They used it, but it produced insomnia, aggression, and paranoia with long-term use. So, it produces these psychological and physical dependence on amphetamines. And withdrawal symptoms involve depressive effects such as fatigue and negative emotion. So now amphetamines are a popular drug that stimulates the re- release of norepinephrine and dopamine, but it also blocks the removal process of uh, these stimulating drugs or sim- stimulating neurotransmitters. First drug is ecstasy, otherwise known as MDMA or Molly. Um, and am- it's an amphetamine derivative. Uh, it's a stimulant, but it has additional effects somewhat close to hallucinogens so symptoms include jaw clenching and interfering with body's regulation of body temperature people can feel like they have a suppressed diet thirst need of sleep and they're highly susceptible to dehydration heat stroke and general exhaustion ecstasy is not as likely as some other drugs to cause physical or psychological dependence but it can still lead to dependence and studies suggest that it sustains that sustained use is associated with damage to the serotonergic neurons so your serotonin neurons that release and create serotonin and these drugs are associated with problems with mood attention memory and impulse control are they even used in a clinical setting they are um they're used in um like from what i've learned they're used in like um adhd um and actually kind of something that you mentioned earlier you know how they're originally um used as like diet drugs so i realized that a lot of uh, medications um because one of the side effects of amphetamine is like um reduced or suppressed appetite so a lot of it i realized is like oh they'll use the drug side effect to kind of market it as something else um, so, like, when I was in school, I thought it was pretty interesting that instead of using the medication as it's, like, what it's att- intended for, they kind of use, like, the side effects to market it to something else. But, yeah, in terms of amphetamine, um, I think, what from what I remember, ADHD, uh, since it helps with, like, mood, uh, since it kind of, I wouldn't say, like, regulate, um, but it kind of helps the person dampen down their excitability and, um restlessness and i know with these drugs you have to what um what we say is like you have to start low go slow um since everyone's body is a little bit different whatever works for that person might not work for something else so it's a bit of a trial and error sometimes yeah and i feel like with the diet thing because it has the side effect of suppressing your appetite tell me if i'm wrong but i think it's because since it excites your central nervous system you're so like you're so active and alert this kind of system is activated normally naturally when there's a threat in the environment you're super stressed and obviously your Mm -hmm. last concern when you're stressed is to eat is to eat yeah so so maybe that's that's why that's why okay so next we're gonna go over cocaine it's derived from the leaves of the coca plant and cocaine is usually snorted or smoked in when it's crack and it produces exhil- exhilaration and euphoria and are seriously addictive for humans and rats. So withdrawal takes the form of an unpleasant crash 
dangerous side effects of cocaine include psychological problems such as insomnia, depression, aggression, and paranoia, as well as physical problems including death from heart attack and hyperthermia. So cocaine acts by preventing the removal of the neurotransmitter agonist. So it just allows these neurotransmitters to stay in your system and for you to stay alert. Uh, norepinephrine increases your heart heart rate so overdose on amphetamines or cocaine can cause heart irregularities and sometimes death. yeah don't do it <laughs> <laughs> don't do it don't, don't do, do it i think yeah um cocaine it's uh i would say it's one of the more dangerous um substance out there just because um pe- when people take it um they get their euphoria really fast um, but then at the same time, it does wear off really fast as well. And so that's like a motivation for the person to continue taking. Um, yeah, but kind of like you mentioned, withdrawal symptoms are very, very bad, um, which is why people end up uh, keep using it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And cocaine is a very prevalent drug in the party setting. It yeah. is, yeah. Um, and lastly, we're going to talk about nicotine. It has positive effects to people who uh, report smoking or vaping and it produces a state of relaxation and improved concentration coming from a relief of withdrawal symptoms it doesn't cause relaxation and improved concentration when you initially use it it's when you're addicted to it and then you take it and then it gives you that relaxation and improved concentration so it's very addictive and it's i feel like it's compounded by the availability of nicotine and it it also has less social stigma around it compared to other substances Mm -hmm. so i find that a lot of people are vaping nowadays yeah with nicotine it's kind of like alcohol right Um, compared to like alcohol and nicotine to other um psychoactive drugs these two are definitely more i guess socially accepted and so you know uh, it's it's very easy to obtain you could go to a grocery store you could get something um some people don't think it's addictive, which is very interesting. Um, I have like patients coming into the pharmacy telling me that they smoke like two packs a day and tell me that they're not addicted. <laughs> yeah, I would say nicotine is pretty hard to quit though from, from what I've seen. Um, there is a lot of things out there right now to like help people who want to quit. So I think that's definitely a good thing because with other um, drugs that we were talking about, a lot of them don't really have like a treatment available and it's mostly just uh the person just has to get through it yeah type of thing that's Mm -hmm. that's a rough answer to give to people who are addicted (laughs) like just just rough it out sorry (laughs) (laughs) i mean there's like there's like things you can take for like um to help with the symptoms of like withdrawal and stuff um but overall like we have you know there's like smoking sensation in place whereas there's nothing really for like what we talked about um toxic inhalants or like barbiturates or like yeah things like that i think was also these prevalent drugs including alcohol and nicotine since it's so widely accepted and available it's harder to quit because mm-hmm. everyone's most like a lot of people are like using it mm-hmm. okay and now we're going to talk about opiates so opiates are a highly addictive drug derived from opium that relieves pain relaxation and it gives relaxation and euphoria. They're also called narcotics. And it's easy to create tolerance and dependence on opioids. So withdrawal symptoms include nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and it's just overall very uncomfortable. 
Um, so we actually have opioids that are produced naturally in our body. They're called uh, endorphins, endogenous opioids. These natural opioids are released when we are in a lot of pain. So it helps us cope uh, with pain and stress. And endorphins are secreted in our pituitary gland and other brain sites as a response to injury or exertion. And it creates this kind of natural remedy. And this often occurs as a runner's high. If you run for a really, really long time, you kind of feel like you're high. And this is because of your endorphins. Opioids are naturally derived from the poppy plant. Um, they can be made into morphine or heroin. So they, they, or they can be made synthetically which are often known as oxycodone, hydrocodone, and fentanyl. So most opioids work in the part, in part by acting as an agonist for the endorphins, which creates a powerful feeling of calm and euphoria and pain relief by mimicking your brain's own internal relaxation and well, well-being system. But it also diminishes your brain's ability to um, be sensitive to the rising levels of carbon dioxide in the blood so it depresses your breathing and in cases of overdose it can often lead to suffocation and death um, that's why it's really important to have a naloxone kit uh, naloxone is an opioid but that one that acts as an antagonist and binds to the opioid receptors blocking it against the uh, narcotics like heroin so naloxone kits are very um very useful yeah i think uh if you go into any pharmacy um they're like free of charge you can just ask for them um so usually we do like encourage people to like come in and grab one especially if they know like their close friend or their family um does engage in like you know uh, substance use and stuff there's usually like instructions within the kit as well um but usually people will ask like oh how do you use them and then people at the pharmacy are able to like help them with it so is it a nose spray is a nasal spray um well i know uh there's like the nasal spray there's also like the injection type um which people are trained for um yeah i think they're both really easy to use though from like from what i've heard um, I haven't seen one myself, but uh, we're supposed to be taking a look at it okay. soon. So drugs administered with hypodermic syringes introduces dangers of diseases such as hepatitis and HIV. So heroin and opioids in general are often administered through intravenously. Uh, but I'm, I know they are also taken orally. And I, I think I heard that there was it was actually... A, the system problem at one point mm -hmm. people were prescribing a lot of opioids for pain medication and then a lot yeah. of people got addicted to it yeah, yeah. Uh, my actually my research is actually exactly on that so i have so much to say <laughs> okay um, give me like a brief summary okay so basically for my research project um i was looking at so ppo's pre-printed orders and that's what doctors use for uh, prescribing, say like, oh, a person got a hip arthroplasty or a knee, um, knee arthroplasty, there's usually like a PPO there in place with all the standardized um, treatments there. And so what the doctors can do to save time and to keep everything standardized, they can just take things off. Um, but the problem, like you said, was at one time was the system, right? Um, the PPOs were not of 
the best quality and so there was a lot of opiates on there unnecessarily paying uh treatments there and um doctors would like um it's very likely that people would take off more than one box more than more boxes than needed and so for my research i was looking at all the fraser health uh pre-printed orders for surgical um for the surgical wards and then what we did is we looked at all the pain medications and made sure uh to follow a, like a certain standard like oh what's good opioid practicing versus bad and um to kind of push the change to uh, come out with better standardized ppos because like you said um what happens is people go back home with too many pain meds and they keep taking it and it's addicting and so they can't stop taking it and so what they'll start doing is they'll take uh, they'll take their mom's opioids they'll take their friends opioids just to keep going because if you take opiate like if you get off of opioids too fast um you experience more pain that's really interesting i like that your research not only has the research aspect but it also has implications and and suggestions for new protocols so that's that's really good yeah mm-hmm Okay, perfect. So next, we're going to talk about hallucinogens. They alter sensation and perception and often cause hallucinations and alter perception and alterations in your consciousness in extreme cases. So examples of these drugs include LSD, which is synthetic, mescaline uh, from the peyote cactus, psilocybin from mushrooms, ketamine, PCP, um, which is phencyclidine. And typically, they're not addictive. Animals will not self-administer them, but overdo- and overdoses are rare. And ingestion of peyotes plays a prominent role in the Native American religious practices. And LSD was first made by this scientist, this chemist, Albert Hoffman, in 1938. And he did rash experiments, and it influenced the popularization of hallucinogens in the 1960s, the hippie era. And I just remember hearing about it in chemistry class. Uh, this this chemist made the lsd he administered like i think it was like 0.1 milligrams it was a very small dose but for lsd that is considered an extremely high dose so he was just like (laughs) through the roof high hallucinating on the floor of his lab and that's what i've heard but um psilocybin uses uh the clinical psilocybin with clinical supervision has been shown to have actually promising results in treating addiction and depression. I did a paper on this and it helps with addiction. It helps with um, cure, not curing, but treating depression. And it has long-term benefits with addiction and depression. So I think that it might be introduced later in the future in a clinical environment, maybe with psychologists, but it can also be dangerous if you take it in an uncontrolled and unsupervised, yeah. unsupervised environment. Ketamine is also a dissociative anesthetic. It can induce sedation, amnesia, and hallucinations by distorting perception of sound and sight, but not as intense of a hallucination as uh, LSD or psilocybin or mescaline. Um, And ketamine usually has hallucinatory effects, which last about 30 to 60 minutes, whereas psilocybin and LSD can last up to several hours. Do you know anything more about hallucinogens? Um, for this one, we 
we like only briefly covered um under like substance use um compared to like other ones that we talked about earlier they're not as addictive um but like the use of uh when using them like dosages is very important just because um kind of like you said earlier like 0.1 for lsd is like a high high dose um yeah all i know is mostly like about ketamine um it's mostly used for like surgery for uh, anesthesia otherwise um use other than anesthesia is very harmful to the body oh ketamine is harmful to the body uh it's like it kind of disrupts like your body and um i would say compared to lsd and like the magic mushroom those are more of a one-time thing that's what i've heard um ketamine a bit more addictive compared to those and um yeah uh do you think there's any clinical prospect of using psilocybin or uh, hallucinogens in a uh, yeah in a clinical setting to treat maybe depression or addiction um i haven't learned it in school uh but i have heard of cases where people take one dose and it kind of changes everything their perception of life and all that so i think it could be but i think they would need a lot more like studies to make sure that it's safe for people to take um yeah people do react very differently to these hallucinogens so um it, it would be hard to say for the general population because the risk of it going wrong is so big though that's why people are pretty uh, scared of diving into that area that's true okay now we're going to talk about cannabis uh, cannabis has become very widely used especially with the legalization um, we're in bc so it's a big cannabis area tetrahydrocannabinol t- otherwise known as thc so um a natural cannabinoid in our brain is called an anad- anandamide and is responsible for regulating our mood, memory, and it increases our appetite and brain perception, which is why I guess THC has similar effects. So with the use of cannabis, people normally describe experiencing euphoric uh, sensations. So they feel like everything is funny with a heightened sense of sight and sound and perception of rushing ideas, but not being able to articulate them. And marijuana affects judgment and short-term memory and impairs motor, motor skills and coordination. So weed is one of those drugs that are very unlikely for you to have an overdose with. Um, marijuana abuse and dependence have been linked with increased risk of depression though, and anxiety and other forms of psychopathology. So it's not all fun and games and it's not all safe. And many people are actually concerned, especially parents, that weed is a gateway drug. And gateway drugs is a drug that increases risk of subsequent use of more harmful drugs. But this gateway drug theory has mixed support. So recent studies are challenging this notion and suggesting that early onset of drug use in general, regardless of the type of drug, increases risk of drug later and mental health problems, not weed itself. Yeah, I agree. I think in case, like... Other than the fact that it's, like, substance use at an early age, I think um, the brain doesn't stop growing until, like, I think 25. Um, So I remember reading papers saying, like, oh, okay, if you were to take, if you were to choose to take drugs, like, it'd be better for you to take it until after your brain has kind of stabilized, um, done its growing. 
um, they did a study on, was it, I think, 70-year-olds taking drugs versus, like, a 20-year-old, um, and they followed the 20-year-old and the 70-year-old over time, and because the 70-year-old, like, their brain was already formed, everything's, like, you know, what's there is there, um, there wasn't any, or, like, much complication in terms of, like, the drugs they were taking, but for the 20-year-old, um, their brain wasn't done forming, and so there was a lot of, like, complications, so, like, like you said, mental health problems, um, increased risk of other drug use, and, yeah, uh, problems with, uh, dealing with stress and all that, too. Wow, okay. Mm. Do you know what kind of drug they, uh, used? I think they used, um, I know weed was in there for sure, um, I think they trialed, like, other ones as well, um, yeah, not quite sure what the other ones were, but, um, overall, like, what I remember was, like, um, if you want to use drugs, wait until your brain has stopped growing. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I think there needs yeah. to be a better way to implement um, the drug drug inform information kind of educational mm. system because mm. I feel I remember getting um, informed about drug use in elementary school and high school, and mm. I, it was literally just videos of them showing scary. Scary video, yeah, scary videos of people in the downtown east side telling us not to do drugs. Okay, so now we're going to actually talk about addiction. So addiction is related to the topic of positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement. So positive reinforcement is when you initially take the drug, the initial motivation to use the drug. Once you take the drug, you have this euphoric feeling, you have a good time then you're motivated to try again. That's the initial positive reinforcement. And then once you've used it a couple of times, the positive effect kind of diminishes and you start being more dependent on it when it forms it into addiction. And this is when negative reinforcement comes into play. So over time, the drugs get less rewarding and you, get you, and you use it to prevent negative effects. So prevent, preventing withdrawal symptoms. You know how we take pain meds or Advil or Tylenol after, when we are in pain to remove pain. It's the same with people who are addicted to drugs. They want to remove whatever negative withdrawal symptoms they're experiencing by using more of the drug. So risk factors of addiction. Genetic factors. Men are more likely, uh, unfortunately. Um, coexisting mental health disorders also is a risk lacking social support, subclinical depression and loneliness, trauma, and extreme stress are all risk factors. I also know that socioeconomic status is a risk. Um, it's interesting because I heard that, I learned that with lower socioeconomic status, you're less likely to start drug use, but more likely to get addicted and continue drug use than people of high socioeconomic status. People of high socioeconomics are more likely to try it out, experiment, start drug use, but more likely to quit and recover. So approximately 75% of those with substance use, dis substance use disorder overcome their addiction, with the biggest drop in use occurring between the ages of 20 and 30. So sensation seeking and impulsivity falls continuously as people continue to age from adolescence to adulthood. So since they're less impulsive they learn to make better decisions 
Uh, there's also research over the past several decades suggesting that some people have clear genetic, neurobiological, and social social predispositions to have deficits in their ability to resist the urge to engage in drug use, even if doing the drug has negative effects on their lives, such as losing their home or family. I think people, there is a addictive trait in people. Some people are more likely to be addicted just generally in terms of personality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I um, I think a few months ago, I saw this like TED talk on YouTube. They're actually just talking about like um, the nature of addiction, um, how some people, um, there's like, they, I think they used like, an example like, okay, 100 people, 70 probably has addictive personality, but out of those 30s, maybe only half of those um, will actually get addicted. Um, so obviously there's personality, there's genetics, but it's also um, a lot about like how you grew up um, and then like like what environment you're in. Um, also, like you mentioned, lacking social support, that's a big thing as well. Yeah, I completely agree. Okay, so those who are exposed to drugs of addiction, only about 10% will go on to develop develop a substance use disorder. And substance use disorder is described as patterns of symptoms resulting from the use of a substance where the individual continues to take it despite experiencing problems as a result of the use of the drug. So in the DSM-5, which is a diagnostic book for mental health disorders, um severity is measured by how many of the how many of the 11 criteria an individual agrees with so if you're using a substance of any sort and you think you might have a problem feel free to keep count and i'll reveal the severity scale at the end so one taking the substance in large in larger amounts for longer than you meant two wanting to cut down or stop using the substance but not managing to three speed spending a lot of time getting, using, or recovering from the use of substance. Four, cravings and urges to use a substance. Five, not managing to do what you should at work, home, school because of the substance. Six, continuing to use even when it causes problems within relationships. Seven, giving up social, occupational, or recreational activities because of the substance use. Eight, using substances again and again even when it puts you in danger nine continuing to use even when you know you have a physical or psychological problem that could have been caused or made worse by the substance 10 needing more of the substance to get the effect that you want so tolerance 11 development of withdrawal symptoms which can be relieved by taking more of the substance so okay now that you have your number uh, mild is if you answered yes to two to three of them. Moderate is four to five. And severe is six or more. So you can go and ponder about that. So first uh, aspect of addiction is tolerance. The larger dose, drug dose required to achieve the same effect or a similar effect. Physical dependence, pain, convulsions, hallucinations, or unpleasant symptoms that accompany withdrawal from the drug use. Um, And then psychological dependence, desire to return to the drug even when physical withdrawal symptoms are gone. Drugs can create an emotional need over time and it continues to prey on the mind even if you don't have the physical symptoms. 
So treatment, what do we do? Usually, so usually when you go to a clinic and you know you have a problem, they do an assessment. They assess the severity of the substance use disorder and the types of drugs that you've taken, and they assess other mental health disorders that you might have. And then they do behavioral behavioral or psychological treatment. So this could be individual or group therapy, and they usually aid in coping with withdrawals and cravings. They address mental health concerns, and they address the maladaptive learned associations. So the habits that you have that the triggers for the drug they could also use operant learning by rewarding or punishing positive or negative behavior and then the last thing that they would do is medication assisted therapy and this is typically for opioid addictions Uh, they use methadone which is a long-lasting opioid agonist it acts as it acts like an opioid but it doesn't have the euphoric effect it just gets rid of the withdrawal symptoms and suppresses your cravings you can start to reduce the methadone amount to help with your recover from your addiction these methods are used but addiction is one of those things that's really hard to recover from it's like a it's a mental health disorder where you're kind of struggling with it for a long time yeah i think um the hardest part is because people can't see it Mm. so um it's not like you're like you have an injury right or you uh fractured your bone or something you have a cast on people know that you're recovering with like mental health problems substance use it's usually invisible and so that's really hard on the person themselves as they're trying to um get out of it and yeah i think one of the most important thing with like uh treatment and assessment for substance use is making sure that expectations are set and um, to help the patient kind of um, achieve whatever the goal that they want. So not everyone wants to completely stop using drugs due to some personal reasons. That's completely fine. I think as long as they have a goal of whether that's like reducing it or like you said, um, using methadone to kind of help with the craving. Um, But yeah, I think yeah, I just wanted to kind of mention that because a lot of people think with treatment with substance abuse, uh, substance use, the goal is to stop using it, but um, it's kind of different for everyone depending on what they want for life. Yeah, it's really interesting that you say that because I always thought the goal was to completely stop drug use. No, I think that's what I thought too, to be honest, before. Um, I was like, okay, the goal is to obviously help the person go through withdrawal symptom but also stop using it um but then uh, have, have you heard of a uh, safe injection or something um i think i'm not sure if that's the name exactly but there's like clinics opened in like downtown east side and like just downtown in general where people can go in there for like for free drugs um because they're addicted um but we're worried about overdosing and contamination and so they could go there they get um, clean needles, they get uncan- uh, uncontaminated uh, drugs, and it's like safe injection. And then it's supervised, they'll just go there every day, and then go on with their life. Wow. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's I think that's smart. I, I did know about the safe injections. I thought they were just providing uh, clean needles, mm. but I didn't know they actually provided the drugs itself. Yeah, I think it's called uh, harm reduction 
Yeah, I think it's really important to prevent people from seeking drugs in an unsafe way. Okay, so last thing I'm going to talk about is hypnosis because hypnosis is another treatment method that's been used to treat addiction. So hypnosis means open to suggestion. It's a social interaction in which one person, the hypnotist, makes suggestions that leads to a change in another person's subjective experience of the world. And typically, they're asked to sit quietly relax and focus on something such as a spot on a wall or a swinging pocket watch that we always see in the movies and um, they start to make suggestions to the person and about the effects of hypnosis will have and uh, some people are more susceptible than others to some people it actually works wonders so hypnosis can undermine memory hypnosis can often lead to an experience called post-hypnotic amnesia it's the failure to retrieve memories following the hypnotic suggestion to forget so the hypnotist will be like okay i'm going to suggest you to forget about this memory and they literally forget wow they have amnesia and some (laughs) and some amnesia can be reversed so the hypnotist can you know put them in hypnosis again and then tell them to remember the memory and they'll recover the memory which is so yeah, which is so insane to me but it uh there's been several cases many cases where it has worked and research found that only that only memories that were lost during hypnosis can be retrieved by hypnosis it, it's a false conception that hypnosis helps people unearth memories that they weren't able to retrieve in the past um if they don't have the memory in normal consciousness they won't be able to surface them because of hypnosis they can only surface memories that were already suppressed by hypnosis and um yeah they seem to be experiencing uh, what they've been asked to experience so if you're susceptible to hypnosis this could be a treatment method for you Uh, could be an option yeah it would be an option and it's been helpful in clinical settings so it's also been helpful with pain relief it's called hypnotic analgesia so the reduction of pain through hypnosis in people who are susceptible so in in susceptible people it reduces pain reduces lengths of hospital visits hypnosis also is more effective than morphine diazepam aspirin acupuncture and placebos in some cases and uh, pain-reducing properties of hypnosis have been demonstrated repeatedly over years with recent research from control trials suggesting that it can even reduce the experience of pain in brain surgery during which the patient is awake. Yeah, that is the end of my content. Do you have any maybe last, last things you want to say about addiction or drugs? No, I mean, I think um, it's definitely a very sensitive topic. Um, So it's actually really nice that you're doing like an episode on it just because um, it's usually uh, people kind of treat it as a hush-hush topic. Um, So I think the more that people can hear about this, the less uh, people feel uneasy around the topic. And I think that is also better for people who are struggling with substance use. Yeah, and addiction is not about a lack of willpower. A lot of people think... No. Yeah, yeah, people especially who are not aware, they think that, oh, why don't they just stop using the drug? Oh, why don't... If they just get past the withdrawal symptom part of their... 
of their recovery then they'll be fine they just have mm-hmm. to not take it they don't have any physical symptoms but it's it's a lot yeah, more than it's, that it's very complex yeah. and so mm-hmm. it is important to talk about and if you are not struggling with addiction i advise people to be more understanding and maybe come with a little bit more awareness when dealing with people who are struggling with addiction yeah so that concludes this today's episode Thank you, Ariel, for joining me on this episode. I find it was very informative, some of the things you talked about, and I had a lot of fun. Thank you. I had a lot of fun as well. Uh, I hope everyone (laughs) else has a wonderful day, and I'll see you all next time. Bye.